So welcome to today's part in an ongoing series. This is a collaboration between the Federal Knowledge Management Working Group, Ontolog, and NASA, trying to explore various connections between the idea of using ontologies and knowledge management for decision support. So we've had a few different conversations in the past. Today's is exploring a different kind of space. And and I think the English language has limitation when we're at NASA because we talk about virtual spaces in space. And so it, um, it may be a little confusing as we go through this conversation today. So the, the thing that drove this was actually an initial discussion with um, Susan Turnbull and looking at the idea of how we look at uh, an information space, virtual spaces, architectural physical spaces, and the fact that in many ways all of the spaces that we're talking about are actually just venues for conversation. So whether that's face-to-face -face in an office meeting room, whether it's sitting in Second Life um, and your avatars are, are uh, collaborating on something, whether it's working in a wiki or uh, viewing information on a website, all of those are spaces that their architecture drives conversations a certain way. So we wanted to sort of explore this, and again, part of this mini-series is, is trying to open conversation ideas for this really um, engaging group of folks to, to try to explore new ways that we can um, reach out and collaborate and work together. So the speakers today are bringing together three different ideas. Um, Tom Soderstrom is our first speaker, and he's going to be talking a little bit about looking at virtual worlds and how... Um, our work at NASA in Second Life has evolved in such a way that we understand the way in which we shape events, activities, and the virtual physical spaces <laughs> actually changes the kinds of conversations and the kinds of interactions we have with people in Second Life. I'm then going to be talking a little bit about very traditional information spaces, looking at how we use the NASA taxonomy to sort of drive conversation a certain way at the agency and how that proliferates across our web spaces. So looking a little bit at very traditional ways of how we architect content um, in persistent forms that then drives conversation a certain way and also the cautions about what kinds of conversations that, that tends to inhibit. And then finally, um, with a really futuristic look, Marcella Oliva is going to talk a little bit about really looking at the idea of um, space ontologies and the formation of um, an architectures. And Marcella brings an actual true architecture, like a physical architecture, background to this. So, so we have three different speakers with um, three very different perspectives about this idea of space. So the format today is um, each of the speakers will talk for 20, 25 minutes. We'll make sure that there's time for conversation and questions. Um, we'll be brokering questions from the Second Life audience, so please, if you either um, type it in or um, if you let Charlie, uh, sorry, Jet Burns or Debrie Barrymore, <laughs> I'm Debrie, know, then we will uh, make sure that we get those questions brokered. And obviously on the telecom line, hit star three to unmute. <coughs> So our first uh, speaker is Tom Soderstrom. Tom is the Chief Technology Officer uh, for Information Technology at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at NASA. And his mission here is to identify and infuse new IT technologies into JPL's environment. He's led a variety of collaboration developments and has been a consumer of collaboration technologies and techniques as he's led large remote groups, large-scale IT best practices development, and change efforts in small startups and large commercial companies. 
in international venues and in the U.S. government. Um, before he was at JPL, uh, he was at Raytheon, at Telos, at Easy Technology Associates, Digital Island, Exodus, Cable, and Wireless. From a wide and varied career, we bring you Tom Soderstrom, who in Second Life actually is Tom Soderstrom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Now, I'm hearing that echo again. Uh, is, is that you, Charlie? So, Tom, yeah. I was trying to stream both. I think, is that better now? It's, it's the echo disappeared. No, it's still not. Don't worry about it. I'll, I'll listen to it. Um, can you hear me, Tom? I think that's good. You may want to lower your uh, volume on your computer just during your talk and then turn it up afterwards. Okay, I'll do that. All right. So, can you all hear me okay? On the phone line as well as in second night? I'm trying to get the volume I can right. Hear you well on the phone. I think you're fine. Go, go ahead. Um, so, from that introduction, you may correctly deduce that I can't keep a job, having been around in so many different places. Uh, some of that was during the dot-com and where companies kept buying each other, so you were gobbled up. And one of the reasons that I'm very excited about Second Life and this virtual world is because the world is truly becoming flatter every day. Um, I'm sure you've all read Tom Friedman's book, The World is Flat, but it, it's, it's an unprecedented way that we can collaborate among different uh, localities, different geographies, so now the challenge is going to be to collaborate between different generations. And uh, that's why we, at least myself in NASA, is interested in how do we use these new technologies, uh, both to collaborate but also to try to work better with the uh, new generation and different uh, cultures. So, uh, Jeff, if you wouldn't mind going to the next slide, I'm going to go through the slides fairly quickly. And uh, hopefully everybody can see the slides. If not, they're available later. Um, in, if you look at the generational gap, uh, we all share differently. Um, in the 30s and 40s uh, to 50s, it was all about friendships being forged through adversity, for example, war. Uh, 60s and 70s, uh, it was the flower-child era, so it was the community, and you identified with the cause. 80s and 90s, it was focused on the individual, and it was individual goals. Uh, greed is good, remember that? Um, the two, the, in the 2000s, now it's becoming interesting. We're focusing more on common interests, and friendships are created virtually. And uh, it should be no surprise uh, that the children or kids are having friends, and they go in and play, quote, with friends who are in different countries, uh, and they are interacting all the time. Completely different era. So we need to be able to share in NASA, where we have more of an engineering mentality, to understand this and take advantage of it. That's really what this is all about. We go to the next slide, please. Um, there is a variety of tools that we're trying to take advantage of. For instance, uh, if you haven't looked at LinkedIn, which I, since you're in second, at least the folks in Second Life, I'm sure this is old hat to you all. Um, but LinkedIn is a different network to connect. You know, Metcalf's law says that the uh, value of the network, this is a computer network, uh, is exponential compared to the number of users. And I think that's even more so in the social network, and that's what we're seeing, the, the social network revolution, or Web 2.0, whatever we choose to call it. Um, Facebook, um, I have uh, two teenage daughters, and uh, 
it always amazes me how much they use Facebook. So these are just some examples and how, how well they use it of what we need to take advantage of. Um, so I'm glad to see that so many people are attending in Second Life, and I hope that we'll be able to take advantage of this for NASA's purposes. Next slide, please. Uh, one of the things that we're working on in NASA, uh, it's led by a person from headquarters named Andy Chain. It's uh, to find the experts, we have the social networks. Usually, um, the, the knowledge is out there. It's just a matter of finding it. And this uh, tool called People Organizations Project and Skills, or POPs, enables that. We're much faster at being able to know who knows whom, who can work with whom, who has the experience, both in project and skills. Very innovative and excited, uh, exciting concept. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, Web 2.0, it's, uh, it's interesting. I talked to my kids, and I said, what do you think about Web 2.0? And I got a blank stare. And to them, there is no such thing as Web 2.0. It's the computer. That's the network. Um, it's a new blog created every second in industry. And in NASA, it's maybe every week. So that's one thing that we haven't infused yet at least uh, here at JPL, but we're trying. Um, it's also interesting how active they are. Um, they used to be Wikipedia uh, Encarta. You know, there's 32,000 hits on Wikipedia to one on Encarta. The whole environment is changing, and we need to keep track of it. Um, if you look at uh, Second Life by the numbers, uh, I started looking at this about a year ago and uh, got serious about it about... Uh, yeah, about a year ago. At that point, it was 15,000 people online in Second Life. Now that we logged in, there were 46,000 online. It's grown roughly 20% per month, so we should definitely be paying attention. Um, and so that's us and uh, Generation Y. Uh, the generation that's coming next, your children, if you haven't talked to them about uh, webkins or virtual penguins, uh, take a look. That's what they are growing up. The second life is going to be old hat to them by the time they grow up. And it's going to be very exciting for all of us because they will invent things uh, that for us to explore outer space, we're going to have to. We don't have a choice. So uh, the 8 to 14-year-olds uh, that use Webkin for virtual penguins, they uh, have a purchasing power of $40 billion. And by the way, that's our money. So they should pay attention. If you would advance the slide, please. So... Social networks is uh, important. They're actually critical. And what we can, if we can learn how to use the social network to not harvest the knowledge, in other words, knowledge management, before the people leave our business, that would be absolutely crucial for us. Another one is where people retire. Uh, we need to be able to translate that knowledge into the new working generation. And uh, virtual environments is one way of doing that. It makes, we need to have a way of interacting without moderators and interacting directly and saving it somehow. Um, trust is interesting. Uh, teamwork is built completely on trust, and there's a lot of research. Um, there is a book by Pat Lenzioni about uh, the effective teams, and uh, the whole concept is about trust. So trust is built over time and shared experiences, both the personal, like I know you, uh, shared experience, we worked on the same project before. Uh, transfer of trust, we know, we trust, you trust me because you trust someone that trusts me. Uh, shared values, we agree to operate by the same rules. 
all that is easier if you're together in one place, you see each other. But what about the world becoming flat? What about everybody being in different locations? And that's where technologies like virtual worlds and social networks become absolutely crucial to build that trust. It's not in the future, it may not be two people trusting each other, it's the true avatars trusting each other. And so it's a completely different mechanism, but the basics are the same. If we don't trust each other, we won't be able to work together. So from the NASA perspective, the challenge here is security. And it's security and it's, it's information that I put out there. Could it be used against me? So that's something that we need to solve. And in a few slides, I'll talk about the approach we took to build uh, uh, the virtual world, the virtual island that you're sitting on. And it's all about going in with eyes wide open. It's about testing the waters before you jump in the waters. Uh, the next slide, uh, paradigm shift. I'm sure you've all seen this slide before. Uh, where the left side will either look like an old woman or a beautiful young woman, depending on how you look at it, and the right slide will look, uh, the right picture is either two people looking at each other or uh, a vase. So it's the paradigm shift, and if we look at it with, uh, in my case, my old engineering eyes, uh, I'm not going to see all the new revolutionary things that are happening, and that's why we need to pay attention. Uh, and that's why we need to uh, create lots and lots of conversations. Uh, next slide, please. It's, it's really all about competitive edge in business, and it, it's in all of life. We're always competing on something. And one of the most powerful aspects of this is understanding the social networks uh, in an organization to see how they tie together. And that's where social networking, for instance, that POPs tool that I mentioned earlier, is absolutely crucial. Uh, innovation, and this is really the key. My passion, again, I'm a chief technology officer for uh, IT at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and we innovate, NASA innovates all the time. But how do we innovate faster as budgets become more tight? And uh, we look, the answer is we look at the edges and boundaries of networks. And... Uh, the innovation, the true innovation, always happens at the boundaries. And you in Second Life are sitting in the boundary right now. Um, it's, it's going to be adopted, but whether it's Second Life or something similar, but that's where a lot of the innovation and the direct conversations and the brainstorming will take place. And uh, if you look at the advancement in astronomy, it was uh, Copernicus, biology, uh, all the way from creation to Darwin, just... It, it's the new thinking that drives where we go. So think about where your innovation will take place. Uh, in our case, we're looking at it. We're thinking uh, one of the aspects of innovation, indeed, is the virtual worlds. Uh, instead of, we can't send humans directly into deep space, but we can send a robot. That's what we used to do. Now what we'd like to do is to send an avatar into a simulated world, test, uh, build a spacecraft, test it, crash it, rebuild it, do all that before we even send a robot. Once we send a robot to explore it, then a human and all of them working together. Second life or a virtual world would be a wonderful way for the astronauts to keep in touch with people back home, for instance. Uh, next slide, please. This is kind of a fun one. I'm not going to go into too much detail on it, but you might want to read this one in detail later. Uh, 
you can do too much social networking. This is about uh, dogs, social networking, and when they find a friend, their uh, collars change. Their collars change color. So it's kind of fun. That's, that's too much. Next slide, please. Uh, I've already talked a bit about virtual worlds. Um, and uh, indeed, the President Commission on Implementation of Space Exploration identified that we need to look at gaming technology in NASA. We need to look at uh, virtualization and virtual worlds. So we've been doing it. And uh, we've been doing some research and seeing what our peers are doing. So that that's NASA, that's the aerospace companies, the large aerospace companies, and the FFRDCs, or federally funded research centers. And almost to one man, management, senior management wonders why. What's in it for us? Why should we do this with all the security risks and all that? The uh, young engineers wonder when. And uh, that's where we are now. It's moving forward. Uh, mashups, so this is the Web 2.0 adoption. Mashups is going to be huge. And if you don't know about mashups, take a look. Go and search on Google or Yahoo or your favorite search engine. It's being able to create new applications on your own without uh, program programmers. Um, it's mobility. And the whole world, well, at least the U.S. and the rest of the world, is going green. How do we keep from spending more carbon? How do we keep from traveling? Well, virtual worlds is one way, and social networking uh, is another, where you connect through the computer or through your avatar. Um, so security, again, is a big concern. We need to balance the risk and rewards. So we need, from a NASA perspective, we look at it as a business proposition. What's the advantages and what's the disadvantages and what's the net cost? To go to the next slide. Um, one of the things that's happening in uh, real-life government is going into second life. And, of course, you're all aware of the, uh, the elections right now. What you may not be aware of, at least you folks on the phone, is there's a lot of debates going on in virtual worlds, and uh, there's uh, a way of reaching the public that is unprecedented. And uh, from a NASA perspective, we want to take advantage of that too. Um, so in aerospace, what we know can be done is marketing and, and sponsor engagement, research and development, uh, and uh, now we're saying, can you build global engineering teams? Can you actually do real engineering in Second Life. And I'll come back to that in just a second. Industry, of course, uh, as probably you all know, IBM has put in over $100 million in Second Life uh, or in virtual worlds to make their engineers and uh, uh, consultants more productive. And if we go to the next slide. So in NASA, um, we are looking at it. We're dipping our toes, uh, we're getting a toehold, soon a foothold, into virtual worlds. For instance, mission support. Uh, can we use it for modeling and simulation? Yeah. Uh, can we create a conversation around collaboration? Most definitely. Proposal development? Yep. If you're familiar with proposals, storyboarding is a great way. Again, security becomes an issue. Um, outreach. It's a fantastic way of reaching the public, and I'll talk about that in a second. I've been at NASA for a while, and uh, being able to talk directly to the public and have the public be excited about what we do and give us direct feedback is uh, absolutely invaluable. Uh, training. If you take a look at the universities, uh, the training material is usually online now. There are even uh, Stanford, I think, has their master's program online. 
um, it's a tremendous opportunity for continuing education. Some of the things that we've done is the island you're on now is called Explorer Island, and uh, we uh, built that to see as a testing of a concept. And uh, once we found that it was valuable, we said, okay, let's continue this. But it was all about innovative on the, innovating on the fringes. NASA Colab is also an exciting uh, development uh, where tying in with industry and other NASA centers. Um, launch operations training. Uh, training will be an unprecedented uh, capability. If you look behind you, you'll see our building 180 at JPL. That's a big building. Uh, could we use a virtual world to try an emergency uh, exit if there was a, a disaster, just to model it and simulate it? Those type of thinking is what we're looking at now. Um, conference event support and planning, of course, is very important. We'll go to the next slide, please. Um, so we're going to talk about the seven, six or seven phases that we see that virtual spaces is taking place on. But uh, it's a fantastic way to brainstorm, getting up with initial concepts. And uh, initially, that's all we did, come up with initial concepts. And that led into development of avatars. And did I just lose you all here? Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Can you hear me in second life? Yes. Okay, my computer just did something, so I'll just continue, and hopefully everybody can hear me. Um, so it, it led into development of avatars, and uh, besides for the social implications of avatars, it's uh, a great way of um, I'm trying to get my computer back up. A great way of allowing people who are otherwise not able to participate, like a handicapped person, can become a very productive worker. Um, now, what we're looking at now, as Gene uh, Devery mentioned in the beginning, is all these unstructured approaches. Can we take a structured approach, like a, a building or a meeting place as we're sitting in, and uh, connecting that with real-time interaction of virtual people or avatars? And that's for decision-making. So not just for concept, but actually for making decisions. So if we go to the next slide, um, which is the uh, phase one of running a virtual meeting. Um, and can you see the slides? Or the slides up, Charlie? I can't see it anymore. Yes, they are. Okay. Um, running a virtual meeting was kind of phase one of this virtual environment. And uh, it's, it's one person talking to many people, just like we're doing now. Um, it was a meeting space, and it really was not much better than just a teleconference or data conference. Uh, initially, we had just NASA people on, but now we're trying to get the invitation to the public on so that you can have much more outreach. It also makes us think differently. Uh, it has to be somewhat entertaining, and that's what we'll be uh, struggling in the future here, to make it so people want to participate. And uh, that will be a very exciting uh, endeavor. We'll be thinking differently. We'll be innovating on the fringes. Phase two, uh, phase two next slide. It's all, about, it's all about hosting and sharing a virtual event. You went from one to many to a few to many, where you have speakers speaking to the audience, and you start getting better interaction. Um, we participated in Wired's Next Fest in Los Angeles, and one of the most telling comments to me was when I met with some of the people, and they say, this NASA stuff is really cool. Can I play with it at home? 
And I could say, yes, you can. Just go into Second Life and go to uh, Explore Island. And we connected in a much different way, had a very different conversation than speaking from the pulpit. Uh, of course, it's going to avoid travel. And uh, now you could have your next meeting on Mars. Uh, we have a, a Victoria Crater built in Second Life. So you could fly over it. You could look at it. And then you could discuss with the people like Charlie and, and Jean and myself who are building it and working with it. Next slide, please. And we're nearing the end here. Um, phase three is attending a virtual rocket launch. So here, going from few to many, we now go to humans and robots to many. And uh, to JPL, a robot is anything that doesn't have a human in it. So that's how we think of a robot. Um, it begins to make people feel that they're really part of NASA experience if they can attend a virtual rocket launch. And it leads the way for modeling and simulation and quick brainstorming activities. And uh, it captures the excitement. And if you can see the quote there, and the quote is from a person who attended in Second Life, I'm standing here in real life with tears in my eyes. I never thought I'd be able to attend an NASA launch, and I feel like I'm really there. That's a great conversation for us. That's uh, what we want to see. And, uh, uh, Charlie, are you able to play that movie? It's about one minute. Uh, no, we'll have to provide that link on the, uh, on the uh, page because it goes to YouTube video. Okay, gotcha. All right. Um, so, but it, it's, um, that was an actual launch uh, that we supported, indeed, uh, Jeff Burns, uh, and folks supported this in real time at the same time as the actual physical uh, launch happened at Kennedy Space Center. That's the future as we see it. Many more people getting involved. Very different conversation. Uh, phase four. Next slide, please. Now we're talking about virtual workshops, and this is many to many. If you go to a workshop, you have to travel there, you have to be invited, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in a virtual workshop, you can create the physical and virtual space to collaborate both in virtual life and then at the same time or later in real life. And it blurs the line between physical and virtual presence in a very good way. You do whatever is most effective. For example, uh, Debrie and uh, Jeff Burns here hosted the international workshop on managing knowledge for space mission. It was hosted in real life at Caltech here in Los Angeles and in Second Life at the same time. And there were presenters either in real life or from Second Life, and uh, there were participants that did not have the travel budget, could not participate, but they participated during in Second Life. Very effective, very different. Um, the uh, phase five, next slide, is now we're going from kind of the seminar sharing to a community space, a real a real office space, real environment. And again, remind you that the world is indeed flat. This makes it very, it gives a competitive advantage for people who can take advantage of being in different locations. And uh, it allows this exploration without moderation. So it makes for very quick brainstorming. It gets, makes for getting lots of good ideas quickly and inexpensively. And uh, we're looking at trying to see if we can do virtual engineering with it. The, the use case here would be we're sitting in a virtual conference room. People are in different places. They click on a spacecraft. They uh, 
it opens up into, they, they, once they decide what they want to do, they need to rework the engine, for instance. Two of them go off to do that. They click on this object in Second Life. It opens up into their CAD CAM system. They make the modification and put it back and continue the brainstorming session. That's what we're looking at, uh, the next phase for virtual engineering. Um, one of the other things that we're looking at is the cyber greeter. If uh, when you arrive at Explore Island or another NASA facility, we would like to be able to say, have somebody sitting at a desk and talking to you. Of course, we don't have the manpower to do that, but a cyber greeter could, and there's some exciting technology. Uh, My Cyber Twin is one technology that's out there. There's lots of other ones, but that's something we're looking at. So the last slide, phase seven, what's next? So virtual worlds are creating a way of interacting with others that truly transcends the bounds of physical spaces. This is the first time. If you think about the telephone, that was such an enabler. This is way beyond that. You can do, uh, avatars can collaborate. Uh, you can switch easily into video conferencing. Uh, this is a brand new way and what we ideas inexpensively. And the structure will create a brand new conversation that will happen in those spaces. And it's up to us, at least speaking from a jet propulsion laboratory point of view, to be able to be there to take advantage of it and to think on the fringes and think innovatively. And I invite you to, uh, at your leisure, look at that web link there, uh, youtube.com, and uh, you can take a look at to see that it, it's not just about innovation, but it's about the human factors point of view, that somebody who's handicapped can truly participate and have a much better life. So... That's, uh, that's all I had to say for today. Of course, I'm willing to take questions, but I'm concerned about time also. So, Charlie, I'll, I'll ask for your advice. Okay, thanks. Um, Tom, you may also want to re-log back into Second Life. Uh, your avatar did check out. Yeah, uh, and, uh, Jean, go ahead. Okay, so... Just making sure I'm broadcasting in both venues. Um, so thanks very much, Tom. Um, we do have some time for questions, if anyone has any questions for Tom. Remember to hit star three to unmute your line. Any questions from Second Life? Did I put everyone's avatar to sleep? No, I see one coming in. I can see somebody typing. <laughs> the transmission timing. Well, the technology certainly is something we have to overcome. Uh, given that it's early on, uh, we just can't give up on it. Uh, we just have to live through the challenges and continue exploring. Peter Yim here. Uh, I have a question for Tom. Tom, on, on the, uh, some of the progressions, how much of the uh, activities in virtual worlds uh, can you see could be going into production, let's say within the next 12 to 18 months? I, I understand most of them are ex experimental right now. Um, it's an excellent question, and, uh, okay, my echo is back. One of the things that is interesting about the social networking, the new Web 2.0 era, is 
lots of experimentation. And what you want is fast failures. So we're going to test it. If it works, which means people are using it, we'll continue. If not, we'll try something different. What I think is going to really take hold is this virtual teaming. I think getting lots of good ideas quickly, forming a team, going to from a concept to a proposal that gets accepted, I think that's in the next uh, 12 months easily. Beyond that, I think uh, if you look maybe three years out, being able to explore the gravity, for instance, of another world uh, and testing our spacecraft in that artificial environment is where we need to go because we don't have the luxury of recalls. <laughs> Once it's off and running, it's off and running. So initially, I think proposal development teaming is absolutely doable in the next 12 months. In the next three years, I think uh, having the avatar, send first an avatar, then a robot, and the human is quite doable. The big deal for us is security. We need to be able to have a virtual world that you can invite only certain people to, only your team members. Until we figure out how to do that, uh, the big industry players won't participate. Tom, we have a question from Second Life. Okay. Thank you. Eric, do you want to ask? Okay, I'm going to repeat the questions for the folks on the phone. <clears throat> the, the, there were two-part questions. The first one was, how do we get funding for this? Uh, in, if it's a private industry, they can just decide there's a for-profit motive and go out and do it, like IBM did. Um, that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, uh, is Second Life it, or is there another virtual world that we are pursuing? So for the first part, <clears throat> I think the... Um, Exploring on the fringes is always difficult. Uh, it's easier in the private industry because you can make a business case for it. Indeed, that's how we have to treat it, too. We have to make a business case and say, this is why I, who, and I was the sponsor for this island, <clears throat> this is why I think it's an important way to do it, and I'm going to put my personal relation, my personal uh, reputation on stake and go out and do it. You can't spend a lot of money because we, you know, we're the part of the government, and we can't uh, go off and spend money stupidly. So we did not spend a lot of money on this. We spent a little bit, and once we decided that it was a good thing to do, uh, we opened it up, and we said, okay, we are, uh, in this case, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and uh, after we talked to all the, the right people to make sure that it wouldn't be a black eye by doing this, um, and once we did done that, we invested a little bit more money, but still not very much. Uh, I think it's one of those things where you need the network effect, you need a grassroots effort, and so it's the grassroots folks, and a lot of them we're seeing here, like Universa, like uh, Jet, like uh, uh, Devery, who are exploring inner space as opposed to just outer space. So funding is a big challenge, big, big difficulty, and we just have to work it case by case, and writing proposals and trying to get them funded is one way to do it. The second one is, what's the right virtual world? Boy, if I could answer that, I would be <laughs> a very happy camper. I don't know. Uh, I just know that the security is the issue. Some companies took early copies of Second Life and tried to make them private. That's risky because you get stuck with stale technology, so you can't do that until it's evolved long, far enough 
where you can actually get some business benefits out of it. So I don't know what the next uh, phase is going to be, but we're certainly looking very carefully at uh, all the new virtual worlds. You know, a, a rising tide will rise all ships, and I think virtual worlds is definitely a rising tide. So hopefully that answers your question. <coughs> Thank you. <coughs> Thanks. <coughs> okay, I'm seeing one on the text here. How would 3D modeling come into play? Um, exchanging visual plans and design, animation in real time. Um, let's see. And then it, uh, so how would 3D modeling come into play? Exchanging visual plans and designs, animation in real time with option to lock the camera onto various parts of model while in motion, sharing precise modules, calculation, etc. Also, is, is, is there not the problem of programs always overstepping the limitations of computing powers? That's an excellent question. Um, I think what's happening here is, you know, from, so again, from a NASA point of view, from an investment point of view, we're looking, we're, you're listening to us in an area that we did not have to invent. We did not have to pay for it. There's roughly 50,000 people on, so the infrastructure is there. Now, by necessity, it's not very precise, so it's difficult to do real engineering in it, uh, like 3D modeling. You can do 3D modeling today in a, in a crude way and then use that as a brainstorming and then go off and do your standard engineering tools to, uh, to do the more detailed animation and detailed uh, design. Now, what we're looking at is being able to translate between the crude model of the second life by necessity because it, you know, they're big files to tie that into CAD CAM programs and indeed uh, more precise animations and modeling. Now, virtual worlds and second life is evolving so fast, much faster than I ever thought that I think that will be solved with more computing power at the desktop, faster networks, and supercomputing will get a rebirth uh, because this kind of been stale for a couple of years, but this animation need on 50,000 online people make that 100,000 very shortly. Supercomputing will get a big boost. That's my prediction. Ollie is asking if if he say, if anybody agrees that virtual worlds will only be successful when they go beyond representations of reality. Um, you know, I think that's right. Uh, I think what we're doing now is, and again, it's that paradigm shift in one of the slides. We're looking at how can we advance our current way of thinking using a virtual world. Uh, the next generation, and hopefully I'm fast enough to be part of it, is going to look at how can we do what's much, much more productive that's not done in the real-life environment. One simple example for us is to mimic and model the uh, uh, I.O. moon, for instance, uh, the uh, methane gas, the gravity, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a good question. So, Tom, I think I'm going to go ahead and, and close off the questions. Sorry, let me okay. Go. Thank you very much for listening and for giving me your attention. So um, we have two more uh, panelists, so I just want to make sure we get to them, although the next one is short. Uh, so the next topic is, and if you have other questions, you can certainly find um, Tom in World or uh, – we can continue to have that conversation um, through uh, through the Ontolog wiki and uh, through the Ontolog or federal CAM, the CAM.gov. Um, yes. 
So the next topic actually is for me to cover. Um, this is actually representing a variety of work from many people at NASA, including um, and especially Jane Dutra and the team that works on the NASA taxonomy, supported by Ron Daniel and Joe Bush, who are with Taxonomy Strategies. So what I wanted to do was take the opportunity to think about the fact that while we're talking about virtual worlds at one end of this panel, and we're talking about uh, really sort of far-reaching ideas of uh, architectural space at the other, that kind of at the heart of what we have been doing successfully in the past is really structuring information in ways that help to drive those conversations. And so um, I just wanted to briefly talk about some of the things we've been doing at NASA related to how that occurs. So um, next slide, Jet. So at NASA, we realized uh, early on when we were uh, trying to put together information into ever-evolving, ever-maturing, ever-expanding websites that we really needed to have a taxonomy. Now, there's, there's a lot of historical things we had. We had a NASA thesaurus. We had NASA keywords. We had, had a structure of categories through our um, scientific and technical information program, which was run by our libraries. It wasn't that we didn't have all of that structure or even that we didn't integrate with other outside organizations like the U.S. Geophysical Survey and others that relate to the work of NASA. What we found, though, was that we really needed to take a very rigorous approach to the way in which we structured information in order to be able to make it navigable across these vast web spaces. So when we first started the NASA Taxonomy Program uh, project, which is led by Jane Dutra, we um, had over 4 million public-facing web pages. So there was just a huge amount of content out there without any sort of organization or context. And so what we decided to do is put the taxonomy in place, but as you all know, a taxonomy or even ontology really only provides a component of something that can be implemented. So uh, Jane and I worked together, she doing the taxonomy, my, the rest of the team doing the NASA portal, to look at how to bring this together on our NASA public website. So as you know, it's really talking about predefined organizational structures that can, can bring together information across, in this case, a very federated, very diverse um, NASA family. And I say the NASA family because there's civil servants, there's NASA-badged employees, there's mostly actually outside contractors like Boeing and Ball and Aerospace Corporation and others and trying to bring this together in a way that worked for all different parts of the organization. We really wanted to optimize the taxonomy into something that could be realized as an information architecture across many different websites with many different needs and many different focuses, and create the categories by which people can have conversations with, by, and on behalf of NASA. So we realized that as we were putting this taxonomy together that the structure in which we created the information would actually either encourage or discourage certain people from coming to our sites or encourage or discourage certain people from doing business or having conversations with people at NASA. And so when we often think about a taxonomy or ontology, we're, we're often thinking about optimizing things to have the most elegant structure and organization of content, but, but when we really get to it, it's a lot about how we look at those conversations. And so the taxonomy, although it seems to be in the back, is really manifested into the front when it gets rolled out within a, a website or other information object and changes the way that people can view an organization or its value. So next slide, Jet. 
I just want to give you a little bit of background about what the NASA taxonomy is. And the NASA taxonomy is actually available online. I've got the URL embedded in these um, view graphs. So you can go to nasataxonomy.jpl.nasa.gov, and you can see our multifaceted taxonomy up there. So I don't need to explain to this group <laughs> what a multifaceted taxonomy is. But I did want to share with you what our facets are. So the facets are obviously each of those different ways in which you can view the underlying information objects through different views of the organization. Um, and so the facets that we look at include things like uh, access requirements. That's sort of a, a nice follow-on to the, the last question about security and information security from Tom's presentation. So we want to make sure that things like access requirements are one way that you can view information because if you're looking at what's available for public, what's internal, what's um, restricted, what's sensitive information, what's proprietary from one contractor to the next, then we want to make sure that we can see that kind of information. The primary way in which we use the taxonomy for our websites is often with audiences. And I'll show you a couple instances of how this manifests outside. And those audiences are really how we end up driving the conversation. So if you're a student, if you're, if you're a young person coming to the NASA website and you're trying to get a homework assignment done, you often come to our website and you click on the students area and you're off into homework help and uh, educational materials. If you're, if you're a young person coming to our NASA website and you want to find out what we're doing with virtual worlds in Second Life, then you're going to come to a different part of our website. If you're coming to play games, you're going to go to the kids' site. So these are all different ways in which we take even a single person who comes with multiple interests at different times of the day or the year to help them get and browse to that information. Um, so, so being in an audience, you may be in different audiences at different points depending on what you're looking for. Business purpose really shows up and competencies both show up significantly on our internal websites. And these facets are important because, again, if you're looking at trying to get people to navigate to content across your information architecture, across all the information resources that you have, if you don't organize it in some way by business purpose or competency, it becomes difficult to then bring that information to people when they need to make a decision. And all of this comes back to not sort of building a big data junkyard, but making it accessible for people the moment they need to make a decision so they can move on and get their, their job done. And again, I'll show you how this comes up in that case in our communities of practice. And then you can see some of the other facets. The only other one I really wanted to cover was missions and projects. This is at the heart of what we do at NASA. For us, a, a mission or a project is something like the Mars Science uh, Laboratory or the Mars Exploration Rover or the Hubble Space Telescope. So they're, they're missions. I mean, they're spacecraft missions. And all of our information tends to be gathered around that. Next slide, Charlie. Sorry, Jeff. By the way, I'm going to have to drop off. Okay, Tom. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So here's a view where you can see the NASA taxonomy. We want to make sure that it's publicly accessible, um, not just so that we can share what we've learned, but more importantly so that with our partners and other people who are working in similar fields, that we can try to make sure our things, our, our taxonomies and our information architectures are actually connected to each other. So if you go to the website, you'll see that there's a, a variety of places 
that you can go to. Each of the facets on the left-hand side expands into the underlying information objects. So you can browse through the entire taxonomy. You can look at our metadata specifications, and we, we use the Dublin, an extended version of the Dublin Core metadata. You can look at the DTDs and RDFs that we um, can export our, our taxonomy into. Um, and again, we use a lot of uh, RDF components within it. So within the taxonomy, it really is, is there as, as almost a, a road to get you from where you are asking your question to where the information object is, or the person, or the resource that will help you answer the question that you have. So part of that is making sure that we're connecting people to what we call gold sources, the information that is highly accurate, highly reliable. Again, if you think back to the first thing I said about when we started the NASA taxonomy, we had 4 million public-facing web pages. Now, I'll just be real honest. Not all 4 million of those were entirely accurate. So some had been um, out of date. Some were a mission that maybe had been canceled or changed. Some uh, might have even had conflicting information that had changed over time, or maybe that somebody had an incomplete understanding. And so the idea was how do we make sure that we're promoting people to the right information that we know is reliable. And part of that is, is connecting the, the facets of the taxonomy down to the data resources. So Jane has a large team that works with um, a variety of the core mission resources at the agency. And, those, and then they try to connect and make sure that when we're talking about a specific mission, a specific project, that it's linking to those resources that are the ones that that mission or project um, rely upon. Uh, next slide, Jet. So as we try to bring this all together, and as the team built out the taxonomy over the last, the first taxonomy rolled out in 2004, and then the second taxonomy is just rolling out, has just rolled out now. So it's been a, an ongoing effort in trying to make sure that we keep it as a living document because the information at the agency changes to a certain extent. We get better definition of information in certain areas. We get to expand it and go deeper. Um, the initial taxonomy was overarching, and now we're trying to, to build more depth into it. So the way in which this gets realized is actually, of course, through our information systems. And a quick view from our knowledge management environment to just give you a sense ranges from um, NASA personnel, contractors, people in academia. We have global partners with all of the other space agencies, and, of course, the public who pays the bill. So thank all of you for paying your taxes this upcoming April. Um, underneath all of this, we have systems and technologies and tools like content management systems. We have cross-cutting processes that touch all of these um, pieces that are not necessarily technologies, but are, in fact, um, the processes by which we publish information or the process by which we validate information or the process by which we ensure that experts can connect to each other. And then, of course, we have the people in the, in the middle of all of this who um, provide that information and make sure that all the information is accurate. So these are a variety of the knowledge management activities that we've rolled out over the years and um, relates back to uh, some of the things I'll be showing you for our use cases. So the NASA public portal, Inside NASA, which is our intranet portal, the NASA engineering network, our lessons learned system, strategic communications, and our communities of practice. Next slide, Jet. 
So when we try to put together all of this idea of an information architecture and taxonomy-based systems, we have to go out and find what people are actually looking for. So here's just three quotes from some of the folks that we spoke to as we started this effort. Um, one of the use cases that we wanted to make sure we understood is that people are trying to find other people. So here's a project manager who wants to hire somebody at a different center that's a different NASA physical location to be their engineer. Um, he's trying to figure out who has the right skills and experience and who's done that type of work before. And um, at a future uh, talk, in March, March 20th talk, um, the NASA talks then will be about organizing science information, and we'll do a demonstration of our new um, POP system, which is the People, Organizations, Projects, and Skills, and it's a semantic way of looking at um, finding those experts. But part of the taxonomy is making sure that we, we can find the sources that will give us those expertise. Another engineer noted that he wanted to see the failure reports for a subsystem he designed in FLU five years ago so that he could make sure that if anything had been found out about that system, he could incorporate into his new design. And yet a scientist, another scientist had also said, he wants to make sure he understands the caliber of data that was returned on previous uh, missions using a particular instrument that he's looking at for uh, applying to a new mission. So it's a variety of looking at lessons learned, of looking at how the connection and context is between uh, something that you're asking for and the analysis that you need to do. And the information then for all of these flows across our communities of practice. So let me show you a couple of screenshots. Um, uh, Jed, if you want to give me the next slide. Sorry, there's just a little delay in the uh, second life, so I'm just trying to give them a moment as it comes up. So the next slide shows you our um, Inside NASA portal. This is our internal portal for the agency. It links to, um, it's accessible to the NASA family, so our extended contractors as well. Um, it's customizable. It gives you access to instant messaging and email. So it's kind of your one-stop one -stop desktop. It has wikis and blogs, including from our deputy administrator. The piece that's of interest, I think, in, in looking at this, and I know you can't really see it <laughs> very well, but down the left-hand side, so in the middle are, are a set of portlets that, that have current important information as determined by a variety of people at the agency. But down the left-hand side is actually a set of um, browsable structures that link back to the NASA taxonomy and the realization of the kinds of use cases that we just talked about. I want to find a person, I need to find some information, I need to find lessons learned. And so those help you, in addition to looking at the top through the search box, which is an AJAX-enabled search, the browsable taxonomy down, the realization of the browsable taxonomy down the left-hand side allows people to quickly navigate to information that will be of interest to them. Um, on the next slide, Jeff, this is a view of our communities. Our communities of practice at NASA are actually overseen by the Office of the Chief Engineer. These are 25 core communities that are essential for in management's opinion for NASA to do the work that we need to, to move into the next generation of space, space exploration and move on to the moon and Mars. So these communities are things like project management, system engineering, mechanical engineering. And these communities, again, you know, run through a similar infrastructure, so there's a a similarity of, of navigation and, uh, and viewing between these different resources. These communities of practice, again, if you look at the left-hand side, 
there's a similar navigation capability. So people can, again, look for, whenever they're, they're on the NASA intranet, look for those people, technologies, processes, information objects that they need to find. And underneath all of that is the NASA taxonomy in a way that helps to keep things organized and structured beneath it. Next slide, Jet. Now, our NASA public portal, which just went through a redesign uh, a month and a half ago, a major redesign a month and a half ago, um, is has that taxonomy but in a different view. So, so the reason we have a, a rather dramatically different view from the internal to the external web page is because internally people just want to get to the information. They just want to get someplace, make the decision, find the information and make the decision and get on with the job. On the public portal, people are actually coming um, for both edutainment but also for, um, for, for a more visual experience. And so we have something that's much more visual on our public website. But again, if you think about the um, taxonomy facet of audiences, that's what's displayed across the top here. So I know it's a little hard to see probably in the screenshot, but things like for educators, for students, um, for the media, those are all parts of our audience taxonomy. So again, having this thematic underlay of the taxonomy through all of our sites is, is critical. Last slide, Charlie. If you think about this um, little case study of the NASA taxonomy, what drove us to create it in the first place, how we've implemented and then realized it through a variety of different websites, um, it really comes to, back to the idea that it drives a certain kind of conversation. So we don't have a portion of our taxonomy, for example, for sports enthusiasts. Now, we could. I mean, there's a lot of medical information from NASA that would be of interest, I think, to people in looking at that sort of thing, or, or, or maybe there's even imagery of different sporting events <laughs> from space. But, but the idea is that, that that's not a place that we've decided drives value at our organization, so we don't particularly have that as part of our taxonomy. Now, there's a caution, because... That means that there's certain ways in which we've both encouraged and discouraged discussion. So if we've matured the area of engineering in our taxonomy, which we have, that's a really well um, understood deep area of our taxonomy, the people who publish information, the thousands of people across NASA who, who go to publish information, whether it's internally or externally, they have the ability to select that facet in their publishing views. And so more content tends to get tagged for it. So you get the self-fulfilling prophecy. Therefore, people who are looking for information um, who come to NASA either externally or internally can browse through that facet and search results drive people to that content. So you got more people publishing because they have the ability to take that information in that area. More people come to look for it. And then, of course, when you present to management on metrics, they say, well, how many people are coming to look at information about engineering? Well, gosh, there's a lot of people because you've made quality information available easily and you've made it easier for people to publish. So communities can also gather rich data because you've got things tagged specifically for them. Now, you have an emergent area in your organization that you haven't gotten a mature taxonomy around. So this could either be an area that you've overlooked, that doesn't seem to have the particular value for your organization, or maybe that... Um, this isn't an area that you're publishing a lot of information in yet because it's new to you. Well, so now people who publish don't think about publishing under that aspect of the taxonomy or with that kind of metadata attached to it. 
because there's less traffic to those areas, because there's less information in those areas, then people think, well, there's not so many people who are looking for information about, you know, uh, medical data at NASA, and so you tend not to publish as much information. People who are looking for information, um, while they can still find it through a full content browse, if you only allow metadata browse, metadata search, or um, a browse, they won't be able to get to it. And finally, communities struggle much harder to be able to get information that's a content of uh, contextual information for them. So the, the great benefit of having a taxonomy has to be weighed with the caution of being blind as you start to roll out that taxonomy or making sure that you don't get into this loop of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So just again, to think about the way in which we have traditionally used taxonomies and ontologies to support information architecture and knowledge management really has this ability to drive conversations a certain way. And so I just wanted to kind of wrap that up and open it up for questions. Thank you, Jean. Peter here. Uh, on the phone, I see two hands. Uh, one I recognize as being uh, Susan Turnbull's. Uh, Susan, you want to unmute? In Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. okay. Go ahead. Gene, uh, great, great presentation. Just, just fascinating. I was wondering, um, in light of what you shared, would it be possible to have an additional facet that basically reflected um, who or what is missing kind of in that emergent space and then maybe periodically almost um, have a virtual world event that um, – those outliers from wherever would be drawn to kind of crunch and explore that what 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 seems to be missing from in the formal side but seems to be emerging. That's a great idea. I know that Jane has um, in her plans to have an ongoing um, not a council particularly but an ongoing group that would continue to look uh, maybe quarterly at the taxonomy. Right now, what we tend to do is. I think partially because of the way projects like, like this work is funded at NASA, is that we can sell it about every three years <laughs> to go back and sort of revisit it. So while it becomes an ongoing plan to change it, the idea of having it very organic, I mean, the whole area of virtual worlds and synthetic environments is probably still missing from the taxonomy. Um, the, the idea of having something more organic, I think, is really critical, Susan. It's a great point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then maybe in that facet section of this sort of fluid, organic, you know, what's what's emerging space, um, it would be uh, the the lightweight wiki blog, you know, tools would be right there, so it's easy for people to pop or instant messaging to pop in what they think should be given a little more focus. Right. Good idea. Good idea. Uh, you done, uh, Susan? Yes. Yes. Oh, uh, we have two more hands and uh, one person from 313 and then another person uh, only recognized as unknown. So the unknown person has, has had his or her hand up for quite a while, and you, uh, you probably know who you are. Uh, please do a star three to unmute your phone and speak up, and then the person from 313 area code will be next. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yes. sir. Hi, this is Ken Vaslovsky. Hey, Ken. Hi. I actually uh, 
raised my hand back at the first talk, so it's <laughs> that's okay. I can field a question for Tom if you want to. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. My comment is about uh, well, particularly about this one part in the talk um, where you talked about a virtual greeter. Yes. And uh, I, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about some of the things that um, I've been involved in, in which we have these uh, conversational agents. We're actually using them for medical purposes as counselors or individuals with diseases that uh, are amenable to um, uh, counseling assistance. But it would seem to me that this same sort of idea of a, of a conversational agent this, um, that would, you know, have access to information might be a, might be a, a way of dealing with um, this kind of need where, you know, you, you would like to have a presence even a kind of an embodied presence where, you know, you have a, an avatar uh, which actually engages in a conversation and answers questions, perhaps directing an individual to uh, in a particular way. So have you looked at all at that kind of technology? Yeah, Kim, we're just starting to. I think the, the company that Tom mentioned, I think, was called Cyber Twins. Uh, they're an Australian company, actually, but they're, they do that very sort of thing, well, a similar sort of thing. And then we're looking at using um, some AI components within Second Life to create those virtual readers. The challenge isn't actually in the technology. I mean, there's interesting challenges in the technology, but they're not insurmountable. I think the bigger challenge becomes in an environment like Second Life, especially in, in, in this kind of this specific virtual world, that there's a certain trust model that the avatar you're speaking to is actually representing a real person. And so I think you'd have to be very clear. I don't know what the signboard around the avatar is, something that says, hi, I'm just a cyber creator. Because you don't want to get into a situation where if, the, if that trust model gets broken, even occasionally in Second Life, suddenly that, that sort of easygoing camaraderie that's often part of the sort of wonderful aspect of Second Life, you know, you, you break that. So I think it's, it's, it's something that, that technically can be done, but culturally and socially we need to be careful how we do it. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, I might mention that uh, if, if it's clear to the individual who is conversing with this uh, agent that it, that it is just a uh, kind of a cyber agent, and not a real person behind it, they might actually be more open to conversing with it. There's some evidence, at least in the medical area, that individuals will say things to one of these uh, computer programs that they wouldn't say to a person. That's a great insight. So, so if there was a way of clearly identifying such conversational agents as being such, uh, you might actually find that it's uh, you, you'll get a better response from individuals. Huh. Great, I really appreciate that. Okay. Excuse me, I have a question from the instant message room to add to the queue as well. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, you done? Uh, can yeah, I'm all finished. All right. The next person in line is the person from the 313 area, area code. And the person from uh, the chat is John Graybill. Uh, okay. Yes. Go ahead. 
Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. If you want to take the other person, that's fine. No, no, no. Are you from the 313 area code? Yes. Uh-huh. So go this ahead. Please identify yourself, please. Yes. This is Dr. Ravi Sharma, Vengent. Uh, I'm both a previous version NASA scientist, a physicist, lineage from Apollo to uh, Earth observation satellites and now in current life, <laughs> second life, an IT specialist, senior enterprise architect. My question is a couple of folded. Uh, one is, there is heavy emphasis on engineering, as you mentioned, but I see a lot of value in the scientific archival areas and accessibility. So if we go to your NASA websites and go to... Uh, missions and projects where lot of archives are uh, available, some thumbnails and high-level images we are able to see while we browse. But we don't see the real detailed data sets uh, as we used to be able to see. I don't know whether it's just my ignorance or that those are a little harder to get in terms of metadata presentability on the websites. I would like to hear your opinion and then ask the, another question. So that could be one of the areas that I know got um, neglected in the redesign mm-hmm. of the NASA portal is the science area. So we actually have an effort um, working with our science mission directorate. Uh, we had a workshop just in December. I think it was, up at Ames Research Center, to try to find a better way to integrate um, the science content onto our, our main public portal. And, and I think that's a great example of how, if you're not careful how you structure something, you drive the conversation in a way that discourages certain people from, from being able to find the kind of information they want to. The, the key, so let me just answer the question two ways. One is, I agree, and, and we recognized that as we were as we started to roll out that site um, and we're in a corrective action maneuver. <laughs> the second thing is that um, a bunch of the science imagery can be found at pds.nasa.gov, which is the planetary data system, pds.nasa.gov. So just as a quick fix <laughs> to, to help you. Um, but thanks again, and that just helps me um, encourage, uh, encourage fixing this problem. Just a sequel comment to that. Thank you so much. But the sequel is that the gold mine is still lying or laying in these um, mission data archives, both for external solar system and other researches that NASA is doing, as well as for these human and other space station type of missions. And as these become more available, to public at large, you might be surprised at their usage patterns and also the benefits to humankind from this hidden knowledge in Mm -hmm. them. So I would strongly encourage to put it more and more on a higher pedestal because the perception towards science is diminishing, especially in our country here, and that has to be raised by every possible means. Uh, second comment is that how do we relate these taxonomies to the 
some of the groups like Peters that are involved also in ontology work? Well, I think this, this series is, a, is an attempt to try to connect some of these pieces that we all have this intuition are related, but I don't know that we've really explored those relationships. I mean, I know some people on the line have, and so maybe I should open it up to somebody else. The, the idea was, and Peter and I and Susan Turnbull and Kent McCloskey and some others had said, you know, we, we have this sense that ontologies, the knowledge management group, decision support, that there's a connection here. And so this mini-series is really an attempt to explore what domains that, that perception is, is that we're connected. So um, I don't know. I mean, does somebody else have a thought about that? That's part of what we're trying to do. Thank you. Peter here. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, that is one of the, the main co uh, goals of this mini-series. And uh, we have a, a, an online discussion forum uh, called OKMDS Convene. So besides the exchange, verbal exchange over the uh, monthly events that we are going to put up, uh, the, uh, the discussion mailing list uh, sh should serve as a good venue for people to continue that exploration. And your inputs in the, uh, uh, at that forum would be greatly appreciated, Ravi. Oh, okay. Um, we can probably start a, a thread, if it is possible, within that, to which says links between or connection between taxonomy and ontology. And maybe already our other scholars have already done some work which uh, can start surfacing in terms of summary there or summary statements. Right. There, there were already a few posts there uh, relating to, like, defining KM, <coughs> defining decision support, uh, recentering. KM and so on. We have yet, I mean, you're correct, uh, to really draw the uh, synergies between uh, ontologies and knowledge management and decision support. But as far as, let's say, ontologies and taxonomies are concerned, actually, I, I would also suggest people uh, taking a look at what uh, Ontolog and NIST uh, and several others, like uh, uh, W3C organizers from uh, NSF and so on did last year in terms of the ontology summit, uh, which explored uh, sort of the entire spectrum of what some people call onto ontology, stretching all the way from uh, schemas to uh, thesaurus to uh, uh, UML uh, models to uh, all ontologies to first order logic ontologies, but uh, that's a diff diff different conversation. Our focus on this series is on, is on uh, the intersection intersection between ontologies, uh, knowledge management, and decision support. And taxonomy comes under knowledge uh, area, or is it a separate branch? Uh, we could even taxonomies is coming from sort of the ontology spectrum. Yes. I, I was having that intuition, but I thought I would hear it in terms of 
um, completeness of taxonomy being verified by ontological com- concepts or um, vice versa. <laughs> okay. let, let, let's take that maybe yes, offline. offline or online, I mean, in, in the discussion. In that forum. Great yes. question. So, Peter, in the interest of time, I want to make sure we have time for Marcel. Right, right. Yeah, we, we better very quickly uh, put uh, John Graybill on and try to uh, wrap up this segment and move on to our next speaker. Yeah, these questions will be fast. Um, one is what the relationship is, if any, between the instrument taxonomy, for example, and the GCMD keywords. And the other is um, relates to the previous uh, questions, which I endorse, which is whether there are um, definitions associated with these terms, and if not, how do people decide which term applies? Did you hear that? Yeah, I'm sorry. There's a there's a glitch in Second Life. I'm I'm sorry, sir. Could no, you do that? no worries at all. Should I repeat it? Yes, please. Okay. The um, uh, first question is whether GCMD, uh, what the relationship is of this taxonomy to the GCMD keywords in the instruments category, for example. And the second is whether there are definitions uh, available for the terms, and if not, how do you uh, tag? Go ahead. But for the GCMD, I'll have to take that question by email with you and Jane Dutra. Again, I, the, the details of the taxonomy are really Jane's area of expertise. Um, the definitions of all the, the facets, the components, and, and all the way down to the, the pieces are found if you go to that website um, and delve into any aspect of the taxonomy, you'll come up with the, the definition of each of the terms. Uh, okay, I'll take that offline. I thought I did and was not successful. So. Oh, okay. Good, thank you. So, uh, Marcella, are you uh, available in Second Life and want to come up to the stage? No, I'm not. I'm very sorry. I'm not in Second Life. Okay, that's all right. We'll go ahead and keep broadcasting you. And go ahead and tell us next slide. And the audience in Second Life will see it. All right. So the first slide, thank you very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. And I actually had uh, some few revelations after listening to Thomas and Jean. And uh, something kept bothering me, the whole idea of um, going back to the flag. And I think that uh, what I'm going to be talking about is um, a system of some kind of scope, uh, what I called um, with uh, NASA Knowledge Management, a complex adaptive system architecture. Uh, it's looking at things first flat, then we look at our Earth as round, but it's all about space and um, the space revolution. And it's looking at space, and um, space is nothing else than the absence of form or the relationship of forms. And when we can utilize these forms um, found in nature and the universe, um, there's already enough uh, investigation proven that these organic forms, these universal laws, create um, a very different type of framework, directions, and guidelines. And uh, what we are developing is some kind of device, which is the first slide uh, that is called um, kind of like a repository of spatial knowledge that will be able to, to guide us, and it will guide us into basically everything um, we do and produce. So that's kind of like um, 
everything we're going to be covering during this presentation. I'm going to go very quickly through some slides to kind of give us, I'm trained as an architect, traditional, um, traditional um, architectural practice for the built environment. And um, I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of um, uh, precedence in regards to that. Can I have the next one, please? Next slide. Uh, next slide, please. So just going back to the concept of space, we, we were looking at ourselves as being flat, and then we understood our Earth as uh, a round form. But now let's look at our Earth and how do we belong to a larger context, which is space. And looking at space uh, as a canvas where we can actually put all this information and we can connect everything in regards that space. Later on, I think I'm going to answer one of the questions in regards to 3D modeling and how actually there's a lot of um, uh, structures uh, right now in the federal government that they're going to be utilizing space as, uh, as a repository for decision making. So here in this slide, I talk how space is a vessel of memory where all human experiences can be captured and seen at the same time. And uh, a little bit of what Jean was talking about that um, with these new technologies, we'll be able to look at phenomena from various points of view, nature, man-made, and social-made. And I think um, by utilizing forms and structures that are not arbitrary or are not just coincidental, instead of like just looking at data, we'll be able to actually structure data. Next, please. So, when you think about three-dimensional environments, immersed environments, visual computation, cognitive space, spatial data, spatial information systems. Basically, it is all about space and how we're going to be recording space. And one of, uh, what you're looking at it right now is one of the projects that Microsoft is working on and uh, how our new 3D environment will look like uh, when we will start utilizing space and forms as a way to organize um, our thoughts. And uh, the reason space and forms uh, hold an incredible opportunity to start thinking of information in a very different way is because we can look at patterns and relationships we were n never able to see before. And because these um, solids and forms that I'm going to be showing you later on can actually hold a lot of information behind it. So a form can be actually indicating uh, a very complex uh, um, interaction. So it's just a little bit of background. From the beginning of time, science and mathematical thinking used to have three-dimensional models and forms as visible and tactile tools in comprehending complex ideas. But for some reason, the world of mathematics and science has stopped kind of abstracting it only with numbers and words. Um, currently, these uh, mathematical uh, explorations, not all of it, there's a lot of uh, efforts in various universities that they're beginning to connect back to using form and to using geometry as uh, mathematical exploration. The same thing has happened in the architecture for the built environment. We're seeing a lot of construction and not necessarily a lot of architecture. A lot of spaces that actually have no mathematical order and they do not have any scientific order. These um, proposals that we're working on is that everything we do produce or think will be able to actually follow um, structures that um, 
will provide uh, actually a very mathematical sequencing that was taken from, uh, from the universe and nature. Uh, something that is very interesting is how these frequencies of how we understand our world, when they're broken down, when you're actually in spaces that do not nurture your mind and do not nurture, and I'm going to be showing you other slides later on about these, there's actually enough studies from neuroscientists that you can actually cannot create, you can actually cannot um, become uh, or, or realize the full potential of the exploration or the thinking. So this is very, very different. So um, in our next slide, basically, what I'm talking about re represents how space and order, you know, space and form, I'm sorry, um, create an order that is very different than being flat or very different than just being rounded or, or, or a sphere. Um, and for a long time, we've been using this space form as from geometric explorations. We have used it for symbols. We have used it as diagrams. We have used it as models. So you can see that um, space form has actually affected uh, every single field and every, every single uh, relationship uh, for a very long time. So complex adaptive system architecture, this kind of new scope, uh, like the microscope or the telescope, what we will do is uh, we'll provide uh, a repository of uh, information that is all spatial. Uh, the next slide, I'm showing how architecture, for some reason after the Renaissance, architects, not everybody, but in the majority, stopped using space and form finding nature and the universe to create their spaces. This is not for them. You can see how actually was designed um, with these geometries. And these geometries are the ones that uh, I'm exploring and talking about. Marcella? Uh, yes? Uh, maybe out of sync. Do you know what slide number we're on? Uh, we're number nine. Thank you. So... Um, were we ahead or we were behind? We're caught up now. Okay. All right. So here again, um, the, the beauty of this new understanding of space and forms is that it brings an order. And as humans, we know that order is the first act of human intention. We always want to find order in everything we do, taxonomies, uh, structures, systems, frameworks, and uh, so this is an example of how we've been utilizing um, the concept of space and form to organize thought. Uh, slide 10, please. Uh, space and form has also created a lot of, uh, in our cognitive point of view, as we all know from Jung and other psychologists and religious sciences, space and form has also kind of helped us to structure the understanding of our spiritual world. Slide 11, please. Uh, these are just kind of like um, in the religion uh, and in the kind of corporate world, the idea of manipulating a square and how the square becomes three-dimensional has also affected the experience and uh, the psychic of, uh, of what we're trying to, to communicate in a given um, environment. Uh, next slide, number 12. So these are, we're all very familiar with Kepler, and this is basically what I was talking about, how mathematically speaking, we used to utilize these models. These are called the platonic solids, the 
the smallest one there is the dodecahedron inside the uh, tetahedron and the cube. And we used to do all these mathematical abstractions using space and form. And I think that our proposal is to go back and start now informing the space and form and uh, carry immense amount of data that will provide us um, uh, um, a different type of information. Slide 13. So given that space affects our thinking, our perception, cognition, experience, and we're interested now to capture our knowledge, our creativity, and our production, I think it's very important that we kind of go back and understand, kind of instead of going back from round to flat, I think we should go from round to space. And how does this sphere um, is actually uh, uh, transforming uh, the perception of, uh, of our environment. Next slide, number 13. So this is just like this is a, on the right, you're looking at medieval age uh, image that represents uh, some of the same results that neuroscientists are finding now that actually our mind works with mechanisms. And these mechanisms actually are not arbitrary, are not casual. Some of our explorations have found that some of the Kandinsky paintings, Montreal, uh, Picasso, um, actually follow very mathematical mechanisms. And some of our findings reflect that these mechanisms are not arbitrary. They're actually mechanisms found in nature and the universe. Kind of like Leonardo da Vinci said, all the answers are found in nature. And I actually, it is through form and spaces and shapes and linear constructs and relationships that we will probably can look back and look at this magnificent amount of information um, that, um, that we can start exploring for everything we do. So just uh, slide 15, uh, we're seeing a lot of things developing in the virtual reality, second life, immersive environment, but what is really structuring all of this information? How are we really organizing it? And of course, taxonomies is a great way to start connecting um, these relationships. So next slide number 16, um, you know, it's again emphasizing that uh, this geometry, the space geometry, can affect our, uh, it does affect our thinking. It affects our, uh, at a sensorial and cognitive level the way we act, learn, and think. So this is kind of repeating what I, what I said before. So what is um, the power of space? This is by Stephen Hawking, and uh, it's by an artist that uh, Cooper Union utilized for an exhibit they have in New York called the Millennium Sphere. And um, the equations are just the boring part of mathematics. I attempt to see things in terms of geometry. So it's similar to previous image that I show uh, from the medieval ages that actually that scientist got burned in the Inquisition because people were not allowed to think in space. Um, we actually, uh, we believe that as we, uh, as we interact with the built environment and as we interact with the natural environment, subconsciously we create all these um, relationships that are uh, geometrically driven. So, trained as an architect, I was always very confused, and I started thinking a long time ago about space. 
And I said, like, you know, space is the canvas for architecture. And I keep hearing everything about, you know, um, architecture for, for, for the computer architecture of the infrastructure. And I came back with a very simple conclusion that architecture is a system of order of anything we do. Uh, and when you can actually gain disorder from nature and the universe, I believe that then we can be inside of nature instead of outside of nature. We can become another organic system that is self-organizing. So the next one, uh, slide number 20, again, uh, because it's such a complex concept and it's such a radical kind of perception of the world and space, literally space, the universe, I wanted to come back and say that's why it's complex and that's why it's adaptive. And uh, the goal is to create a, a repository uh, and a system that can feed into uh, many things we do. So the next one is pretty dense. You guys have access to these slides later on and, and you can look at it. But it's basically, um, uh, CASA is organic and that's why it separates in form because it actually the forms will be adjusted and manipulated as organically transferred. Something else is that we tend to think of form as something static. It's actually always motion. And some of the slides I'm going to show you later on talk about looking at forms in a integrity model, at forms that are constantly changing. That's why um, this is a very important part of this uh, proposal that this complex adaptive architecture transforms and provides guidelines as a natural force and human psychological and physical needs demands. So it accepts this dual existence. So we're always trying to think like there's too much competition or there's too much collaboration. You actually require both. You require spaces that can, that allow a dual existence. And I think by looking at these type of sensitivity models and these type of forms, will augment our integration, it will augment our diversity. And um, this uh, information will not be arbitrary. It will be done through this spatial repository that we are developing. And here at the very bottom, that's why it's so radical, because once you start understanding um, everything we do with some kind of framework of dual existing, uh, it will transform you know, the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at code manipulation, human interactivity, movement, and so on. At um, slide number 22, I'm going to start showing you some images that will make it more clear. Here on the left, you can see these are the platonic solids, and actually uh, these platonic solids are made out of basically three basic um, elements. Uh, you have a knot, a uh, line, and these forms hold data. Uh, so, for example, if you enter into a room and there's a lot of, I really like this example, and there's a lot of tension, that's why we use the word tension, it means because everybody's just pulling. There's not enough collaboration. So, you tend to think we want collaboration, we, we want competition. You actually need both. And you need both, and the form will actually will be transforming as, you know, the human interaction uh, takes place. Um, slide number 23, please. So there's a lot of studies, a lot of books about biomimicry, unimimicry that had to do with let's look at form, let's look at everything we do from nature and the universe. I actually came up after working with NASA um, 
biomimicry existed before I came up with a name called unimimicry. Uh, so it means mimicking the universe, mimicking uh, the, the, the space and, and the absence of space and how are they formed. Next, please. Uh, so 20 seconds. There's other uh, uh, institutions, DARPA is actually utilizing very similar systems, very similar understandings um, of pattern language and system dynamic. And what you look at the bottom is basically what I call a tensegrity model. A tensegrity model that is interacting based on um, data information. So next slide, number uh, 25, 25th. Um, knowledge and space and forms, we're beginning to uh, start actually putting data into the form. Uh, so the form will start transforming, it will start duplicating, it will start uh, kind of extending as we um, provide data into, into the vertex or into the plane. Next slide, please. So just really quick, uh, knowing what a tensegrity model is, next slide. A tensegrity model is uh, something that is dual, having tension and compression. And these forms are constantly transforming, adapting to the environment. And these forms are actually follow proportion, follow um, harmony, and these are mathematical studies that have been done uh, for a long time. Next slide, please. So this slide shows you a tensegrity model and uh, an evolution of a tensegrity model. And is a more um, these forms you can actually find them, you know, in everything you see around in nature. And a lot of architects have studied them. The Greeks, the Egyptians, the Aztecs, the Mayas—they all built these. Um, Bases and cities of what they, uh, based on these uh, geometries, what they actually call sacred geometries. So when you look at the form, uh, static, um, you don't really see this acceptance of duality. And I believe the next slide would allow you to look at it in a new way. This is a model by Buckminster Fuller, and Buckminster Fuller actually is the, uh, you know, inventor, architect, genius that came up with um, the word tensegrity. And here you can start seeing, like, you know, if one of each of these spheres could represent an agency and then these agencies connected to another agency, you know, I'm looking at all the variables that each, you know, element has to comply, mandate. It will allow for a very kind of um, organic existence um, for it to exist. So going back to you know, how are we doing this, and just like a really quick uh, examination of how we're approaching this complexity. Well, you know, as you know, right now with all these um, information systems and image manipulation, we have hundreds of um, nature um, images and, um, and motion images, these movies from um, quick movies from um, mechanics that exist in nature. And uh, we have actually discovered uh, the geometry of all. Uh, this geometry of all, Leonardo da Vinci, that's what I believe is the, what they call the codex. And um, 
what you're seeing right now in slide 34 is actually uh, one of uh, recent galleries that actually developed a mathematical computation of these uh, geometries. And this is actually not the geometry of all, but in the geometry of all, I don't have it in this slide I, I shared before. You can actually see, every, so far we have put 180 geometric forms from architects, and we have placed about 370 leaves and 220 animal structures, and they all fit on it. So some people are calling it the geometry of creation, and uh, this other gentleman, uh, Nassim Hashim, uh, crossing the event horizon also, that saying instead of looking at um, uh, formulas, we should be looking at relationships. We should be looking at geometries and how these geometries connect to each other. Uh, next slide, number 35. So I'm trying to concentrate even that it affects networks, it affects, um, uh, you know, healing systems, it affects learning environments. Since this is a knowledge management team, I wanted to concentrate a little bit of how these geometry of all of how these data repository can start exploring a way to provide forms and forms and spaces that will inform the user like as previously as you saw the conference uh, instead of having the the person's name you could actually have a form uh, with vectors and edges and planes that as you interact with the person you will know a little bit about that person kind of like when you buy you know, a book in Amazon and has three stars or four stars, you can almost see, you know, you know, it can get very sensitive because there's a lot of personal information. But uh, you can start seeing some kind of like, you know, in the past they used to call it the aura or the chakra. You can probably start through these forms informing the user about the, you know, the environment and about the other person he or she is beginning to interface. So this new work relationship, it will be very dynamic. It will be very variable. Next slide, number 37. So we began putting percepts, concepts, and experiences, you know, um, embedded in the sphere, embedded in the edge. So when you can actually, next slide, if you can imagine, and if you think about it, we have a lot of spatial terminology, and I think it was during the Inquisition. I have a lot of white papers. Like recently, we have access to that we were not allowed to think in space. But if you really think about every time you have a point, and if you have two points, you actually converge. And there's all these terminologies we use in our everyday life. Uh, when you say, like, take the right path, or there's no structure, or there's no framework. So we can really kind of start associating all these relationships in forms and spaces that are not arbitrary but that are actually taken from nature, maybe we can look at ourselves in a new way. And I think just like the microscope and the telescope and the compass kind of allow us to look at how human beings and our built environment connect to the natural environment in a very different way, I think these new scope, cathoscope, or this device, I don't know yet how we're going to call it or exactly, I think it's going to allow us to really see um, how we structure um, many things we do and how many fields interact. So uh, next slide. I think for some reason I'm missing um, slide 38. 
This new form of space, just uh, really quick, I have two more minutes, I think, is that it will allow us to create a platform of knowledge. It will allow us to look at the way we communicate in a new way. Uh, next slide. These are just examples of how we began informing the form with, through a conversation. Um, I'm part of all these other groups, ontologies, and I'm actually connecting the Excel sheets really simple. You know, I'm connecting the Excel sheets to the spheres. I'm connecting the Excel sheets to the form. And the last thing, I'm going to actually jump the next. You're going to see some, you know, manipulations of space. I actually just want to run, run really quick to 47, so I have um, room for uh, questions. Uh, this is a building information model. Uh, somebody else asked about this. We're getting very close to where Second Life and all these immersive environments are going to receive computer-aided uh, design models and 3D studio models and uh, laser scanning models. And these are actually very scientific models that you can actually go down to the square of an inch and they have markers and you know exactly where it's located. So once this kind of very engineering architectural world merge into Second Life, uh, I think it's going to be uh, a total uh, revolution because these are actual uh, spaces uh, in our real life. So real life with second life which, and these interactions are going to be very interesting. And then um, there's actually, you know, on slide 50, if you can quickly move to 50, there's a lot of regulations just about space, the federal requirements, the strategic management and uh, government handbook. They're all pushing with what is called the federal enterprise architecture. And now I feel more comfortable as an architect. So it's basically this federal enterprise architecture, everything is going to be kind of quantifiable and qualifiable through space. And again, going back to social data, natural data, uh, built environment data. So I'm on slide 51 and uh, slide 52 is something I developed at NASA. I want to understand kind of basically what are the forces, what are the drivers? that are pushing this agenda, this present management. It's all about space, you know, homeland security, national intelligence, it's going to be about how do we capture, how do we record, how do we analyze space. So the next one is just uh, explains federal enterprise architecture and slide 54. It shows basically the geospatial tools. And uh, these geospatial tools are exactly, you know, when these tools can start talking, to our immersive environments, to our second life environments. I think uh, they're very scientific. I think we're going to uh, definitely look for an explosion and an evolution of our, of our information systems. But most important is like, how are we going to organize all these? And our proposal, these complex adaptive system architecture, is all about let's create forms and structures that, um, that are found in nature and are found in the, in the universe. And, um, Marcelo, we're getting close to the end of our time, so I think we're a little... That's it. That's it. I'm done. The next slide just shows about the, you know, the standards, all these federal standards already in place, and um, that's it. Uh, the conclusion is just how can we inform what we do through forms and space found in nature and the universe. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Marcel. Are there... Uh, Peter, do, we have, do you want to try to answer, have us answer a question, or I know we went over... Uh, we, we we can uh, since we started late. I mean, we we could uh, we oh, we should uh, take a few questions. We don't have a specific time to close out. Uh, so let's 
do do this for another five minutes. I have one hand up on the uh, phone conference call a person from 313. That's Ravi, I, I guess. Uh, if you unmute yourself. Peter, this is yes, Dr. Ravi Sharma again, Vengent. I have uh, several observations. I think there are uh, space encompasses everything and it's such a general word that uh, in some languages there are 10 or 20 different uh, differentiations for are we talking of near-earth space, are we talking of surface, we talking of underground, are we talking of inner space and outer space, uh, inner to yourself. So let us, uh, when we talk of space, confine ourselves to space-time dimension of this physical universe, which would mean um, limiting ourselves to locating uh, geographically or geolocation or a celestial location of objects, in an inertial frame and also have a temporal sense of time moving. So we're talking of imagery in NASA, of uh, epoch one, day one, time one, time two and so on. In uh, physics uh, and astrophysics, uh, space-time and tensors, as Hawking says, I like to think of geometry, he's not just thinking of three-dimensional geometry, he's thinking of tensorial geometry. Those of us who work in statistics think of multivariate, multidimensional spaces. Those who work in OLAP, BI, and reporting on corporations and organizations also think of multidimensional, but those are statistical or parametric dimensions. So kindly specialize yourself to one of those subsets of space because patterns, frequencies, and tensors go beyond the scope of your current presentation. That's one request. Second is a um, very good comment towards, and I, by the way, it's a great presentation. I didn't mean to put it down. I just, just want to put my comments in to enhance its uh, perception uh, from my point of view. And second is the enabling of federal applications, say in federal enterprise architecture, it's it's a big movement and I agree fully with you that geospatial enabling of what are otherwise non-geospatial data aware applications. And I'll give just one simple example, a motor vehicle application, we're trying to chase some particular car so that application license and a person suddenly gets geolocated if you had that capability. So it's a great presentation. These are my comments. And I'd be happy to hear your response. Um, interesting enough, uh, English is my second language. I, I speak few other languages, and I give it a lot of thought about space. And uh, I, I do believe, uh, and my, my research and what I'm focusing on is uh, looking at space as uh, as a containment, that's why we look at the person is a vessel, and I'm really probably covering from all the perspectives. You know, personal space, um, temporal space, time space, geometric space. And you're absolutely right. That's what Stephen Hawking is talking about. Talking about space and how space is a form. You know, there's a, this other chapter of my research that has to do with energy 
and how space is transformed through energies. And uh, I want to say that the space I'm talking about is inclusive. It actually talks about the three categories you mentioned, and not just uh, the space-time. It, it talks about the three of them. But I really I, I appreciate your comment. I think I'll elaborate and, and later on probably add a few slides based on, on, on your comment. Thank you. Welcome. I, I have uh, another hand up uh, from Susan, I believe. Uh, Susan, if you unmute yourself. Susan Turnbull. Oh, yes. Can you hear me now? Uh, yes. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Uh, th thank you, Marcel. I really enjoyed your talk. It just, I don't know how to ask the question, but it took me back. Several, several decades in a lot of um, things that I have been thinking about and, and working on. And I guess maybe my very quick question would be, and we could perhaps do this offline, whether you might um, suggest a software package. I kind of look around every now and then because I've developed something oh, almost 30 years ago very much along these lines from my formal background and I've always wanted to um, sort of make it come alive with some better 3D tools. So maybe I could talk with you offline unless um, you've got a quick suggestion. I, I saw the Autodesk 3D. Yes. No, I, I think it's uh, interesting you're saying this because part of uh, I believe that uh, the whole idea of uh, collective thinking, and there's a lot of knots in the earth right now, that are uh, moving towards this direction, either from a sustainability point of view, from a software point of view, or from a mathematical point of view. And I, I would love to talk to you and chat because I think that this kind of evolution cannot happen unless it's done through a group, unless it's done through a tensegrity model. We're going to have to do a tensegrity model not uh, if you're trained as an architect, you know what I'm talking about, uh, the knots, the edges, to create this framework, to really create this sphere, I think we're going to have to come from various directions to, to really provide something that can bring uh, a balance to our living planet Earth <laughs> and look at the Earth as a living organism. Uh, uh, and I think it's going to require uh, a collective thinking, and that's why I'm very excited to be part of this group and thankful to my NASA team. Mm -hmm. Great. I, I appreciate that. And I'll just say my background is a very different one in that I came to this direction uh, by way of um, linguistics, language development, and, and cognitive development, although I'm sitting right here in the enterprise architecture arena of the federal government. So it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, you know. Um, I left all the linguistics and Wittgenstein out and uh, the Archimedes and all the machines in the Middle Ages that they developed for uh, the, the power of thought and the structure of thought. So I would love to talk to you. And my email, I think, is available. And um, please Great. identify yourself from this uh, conversation, and I'll be happy to exchange thoughts. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Peter, are there any other questions you'd like to field at this time? Uh, no, that's all from the conference call. And let me let, let me double check the uh, the chat board. Right, and uh, I don't have.
anything from the chat board either. So back to you. Okay, sounds great. So first of all, a great big thank you to Tom and to Marcella for speaking today and for all of you in participating and um, engaging in this conversation. And also to Robbie, who I heard offer the uh, online discussion on some of this, uh, this information. So what I um, wanted to do was just bring us to closure again about the idea that um, where we have come from in our different backgrounds, I think there's a really interesting intersection in this emergent idea of, of the space for conversation and discussion and dialogue that how we create these spaces, whether they are physical spaces, virtual spaces, information spaces, drives conversations a certain way, drives opportunities for engagement a certain way with our organizations and with each other. And so um, as we are all professionals working in this field, I, I throw the gauntlet down for us to all keep in mind the, the things that happen as we, as we move forward in trying to organize that great, vast information space out there. Um, again, a thank you to everybody. A huge thank you to Peter and for um, Jet Burns, a.k.a. Charlie White, who provided the logistic support. Um, any other comments before we conclude? Thank you, Jean. That was a fantastic session that you have organized for us. The informational, very good session. Bye. In, uh, yeah. The audio archives will be ready within a day, and telephone playback should be there uh, in the next few minutes.